0: Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at iXL.com slash audio. Visit iXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
1: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Margot Lightman. She points to the picture. She's like, it's Henry Winkler.
2: He's coming to you. You summoned him. And I was like, oh my God!
1: That and more. But first no one really has time to go to the post office we're all too busy but stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the u.s postal service right to your computer you simply use your computer to print official u.s postage 24 7 for any letter any package any class of mail anywhere you want to send once your mail's ready just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in the mailbox it's that simple with stamps.com you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40 percent off priority mail not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. No wonder over seven hundred thousand small businesses already use stamps.com. And right now, risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage. And, and there's donkey and yeah. <laughs> donkey. He uses stamps.com and he loves it. And right now, Risk Listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show.
3: Whoa!
4: Hello
1: kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Chris Lightcap's Big Mouth behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode, Finding a Way. I just got back from Salt Lake City, we had a fantastic Risk show there, and as you know we've got one coming up at Fort Lauderdale on May 16th, so be sure and pitch us for that one. We've already cast the show that we're doing in Richmond on April 12th, and we're in the process of adding a whole slew of new dates for the late spring and summer, so stay tuned for all that news. I'm going to be doing an Ask Me Anything, an AMA, uh, you know, one of my audio check-ins that I do on Patreon for all our Patreon subscribers, Um, so... Email me at Kevin at risk show.com and send your questions. I'm going to do a few of these, I think. And I'm very excited that we finally have a new radio style story on the show again today. It's been a while. But before we get to that, I want to bring one of our favorites. Margot Lightman is returning to the show. Without Margot, there might not be a risk show. Margot plays a central role in the origin story of the Risk podcast. It's all right there in the introduction for the Risk book. If you don't have it yet, you're missing out on a real treat that Risk book, my friends. Speaking of books, Margot is the author of the bestseller, Long Story Short, The Only Storytelling God You'll Ever Need. And her follow-up book, What's Your Story, is coming out this summer, but it's available for pre-order now. And here she is. This is Margot Lightman with a story we call, Oh, Henry.
2: Hello. So, uh, I think we've all heard the news a few weeks ago that our beloved Penny Marshall passed away, which was very intense for, I think, a lot of us. She was very important to a lot of us, uh, very important to me as well. I idolized her as a kid, and was she was a big reason why I decided to go to school and study theater, because I was so obsessed with her comedic portrayal and Laverne Shirley as a little girl. And when I went off to college, my dad, as a gift, bestowed me with this 8x10 glossy photograph of of, uh, Henry Winkler as the Fonz. And I was like, it's close, but it's not the one I like. I like Penny Marshall. (laughs) You gave me a picture of the guy on the show that Laverne and Shirley's the spinoff of. It's a different situation. But I know he meant well. So I hung it up on my wall when I got to college, and it was like this real conversation started. I have a picture of Henry Winkler as the Fonz. It was like this really glossy, smiley shot, and that people would walk in, and it was the only thing I had on my wall, and they thought, it was just fun, you know? I would, like, hook up with a lot of guys underneath it. Um, (laughs) And I kept it up for four years as a theater major, and... It was weird for me as a theater major. I loved it, but all of my friends were these actor types, and they all would, they had all memorized the entire script to Glenn Glary, Ross, and they would break out into show tunes in the dining hall. And I was more into like reading the plays than being the star of them. By graduation time, I was feeling a lot of anxiety about what I should actually be doing with my life, and I was frequently throwing myself on the ground, crying, and debating between two career choices, which were moving to New York and pursuing a career as an actor, or becoming a sociologist who danced for fun on the side. (laughs) So in the midst of one of these meltdowns I was having right before graduation, my roommate came in. This is year four of college, and she says, Margo, they've just announced our graduation speaker. And I was like, oh, because recent graduation speakers had been Maya Angelou and Ben of Ben and Jerry's. So I was like, anything's possible, you know? It's a wide range we go for here. And uh, she was like, it's him. I'm like, what do you mean it's him? And she points to the picture. She's like, it's Henry Winkler. He's coming to you. You summoned him. And I was like, oh my God. I had like a really like, data version of a vision board, just one thing, four years, and I got it, and I didn't even know I wanted it, you know, and so I was like, well, this is a sign, he's an actor, I should become an actor. I should do this. So I go to the graduation, and I put the... I, I taped the 8x10 glossy to the top of my graduation cap. <laughs> and I go to hear him speak. And let me tell you, I thought it was a weird career pivot for Henry Winkler to be doing the speech, but at the same time, I have to say, no, it was not. He was the best speaker I have ever seen. It was amazing. He was a lot of, you know, the believe in yourself stuff. But there was also... He kept saying this quote, if you will it, it is no dream. If you will it, it is no dream, which were years of my life I attributed to Henry Winkler and then I recently googled it and it was, no, it's Zionist Theodore Herzl that actually said it and he was quoting him but I've, I've, you know whatever, details, right? So I'm really moved by this speech and I'm like, I'm going to do it, I'm going I'm to go to New York and then my dad calls me, he's like Margot I got you a graduation gift, I got you tickets, Henry Winkler's on Broadway right now, and you're going to go see him on Broadway, and I was like, my my dad as a fellow New York Jew was like, you love this other New York Jew, right, right, like this is what we like in our family, so I'm like, okay, so he goes, here's the weird thing that happened to me, I go in to the box office to buy you the tickets as a gift, and guess who walked in right as I bought them? Henry Winkler, obviously he's following me at this point. My dad's like, Henry Winkler comes in. So you know what I say to him? I say, oh my God, I just saw you talk at my daughter's graduation, she's a theater major. And he said, you tell her to come backstage. When she gets when she comes to this place, she's gonna come backstage after I'm gonna give her a tour, I'm gonna show her the ropes, I'm gonna talk to her about becoming an actor in New York. So he goes, so you better do that. And I was like, wow, another sign. So I go to the play, I feel uncomfortable after, my dad, almost physically shoves me to the door. And he's like, you gotta do it. So I go, and I'm expecting them to be like, uh, he was just being polite, he didn't mean it. But they were like, no, he says, come on back. So I go back. Henry Winkler greets me with a smile. He gives me a tour. He talks to me all about graduating and how I feel about the theater. I meet his friend, his other friend that's backstage Tyne Daly of Cagney and Lacey, which I feel like is like the perfect person for him to be hanging out with, you know? And then I'm I'm overwhelmed by this generosity and his kindness. And i was like, "My gosh, he's my guy." And then at the end of it, he took a picture with me. And he, I said, why do you want a picture with me? And he said, for my scrapbook, which is just the sweetest thing. So now I think, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pursue this. So I'm in New York. I'm going for it with acne. It doesn't really feel right. You know, at the time, sex in the city is huge, and everyone's like, are you a Carrie or a Samantha or a Miranda or the other one? And I'm like... <laughs> and I'm like... I, I don't want to be any of them. I want to be Candace Bushnell, the woman who wrote the book it's based on, that's the one I am. And no one cares, and, no one's, and people don't understand what that means, to want to write books. But I did. And I keep pursuing it. And then I get married, and I move to L.A. And before I go to L.A., my dad gives me this magnet for Christmas of uh, Henry Winkler, um, <laughs> as the fawns, like, shaped as his body. It's really pushing it on me, you know? And I'm like, I like him, I like him. I'm convinced. He's great. He's the best. I love him. And so I, uh, I bring in, it's on my fridge in L.A. And about a year in or so, I do sell a book, and it's really hard to get done, and I sell it. And before it comes out, I have all of this anxiety of, okay, what if it comes out and it's critically panned and everyone hates the book or if it offends everybody and everyone's mad. At you know, all of those feelings when you put a piece of art into the world and I was very nervous about it but what I didn't realize was there was another, there's a third option of it being a hit or a failure which is that it comes out and no one notices and no one reads it which is what happened. Um, no one noticed my first book and it was like the tree fell in the woods and no one heard it fall and it was very questioning for me of am I really going to do this? Am I going to be a starving artist for the rest of my life? But I managed to sell a second book, and I felt like things could be different with this. And I was getting in my car one day, and I was thinking about it, a couple, it was a couple months before my second book came out, and I thought, this one isn't a hit, that's it. You're not gonna, no one's gonna give you a chance to write a third book. And you might, you might have to be a sociologist who dances, I don't know, um, but this may not be working out for you, and you may just be a starving artist forever. So let's hope it works, because this is another shot and I'm having all these doubts about myself and I'm about to drive off and I go to put the key in the ignition and I look to the right of me and in the seat of my passenger seat is just the head of the Henry Winkler magnet broken off. I don't know how it got there. I didn't put it there. I didn't break my, why would I break a head of a Henry Winkler magnet and shove it on a car seat? But he was there and he was sitting with me kind of as my co-pilot. I have no idea how. And he was kind of looking at me like, "Hey, if you will it, it is no dream, not my quote, but you know what I mean. And I was like, okay, I guess it's going to be okay. And I don't want to go into a whole ragadocious ordeal about it, but the second book came out, and it was a huge hit. And it was a life-changing piece of art to put out into the world. And it changed everything for me. And I went from starving artist to professional artist, and I'm, I'm not an actor by any means. It's not what I wanted to do with my life, but I am so thrilled that I get to make a living in the arts and that's all I've ever really wanted and it was amazing and I thought my god I got my career on track this is great and then I realized that that's not all that matters in life and that there's bigger hurdles ahead it's not just getting your career on track it's life right and so I have kids and that's hard and then I have a second kid and Right as I have the second baby, my husband has to travel a lot for work, and then I have to travel a lot for work, all with this under-one-year-old child. And we move to a rental house, and then a few months after we move, they're going to sell the house, and we have to come up with all of this money to buy a house in L.A., or we're going to lose our house. It was lots of time apart, new baby, lack of sleep, financial stress, everything coming to a head, and I'd be lying to say that it wasn't really trying on us. And right at the end of all of this, as we're struggling to buy this house, my husband's father gets very ill and sadly passes away. And I was like, oh God, this is horrific and horrible and sad and I don't know how we're gonna get out the other side and I don't know if life's gonna be okay. The morning after the wake, I'm in the hotel room with my husband and he goes to me, you know, it was weird. Uh, Last night at the wake, I met a guy there and his name was Michael Douglas. You know, like the actor, but not the actor. Just like same name as a famous person, but not that famous person. I go, yeah, that's weird. And he was like, yeah. Kind of like that weird make conversation about anything else that's going on besides the death, right? Then we go to the funeral and it's terribly sad. Then we go to, to bury him in the mausoleum and it's also terribly sad. And I'm standing behind my husband and his mother and his sisters. And my eyes are wandering, and I'm just thinking, like, adding grief on top of all of this stress and a death and everything that comes in the aftermath of a death is going to be even harder. And are we going to get through this? And is life going to ever be okay and stable and feel happy again? And I'm standing there, and I'm taking it all in, and my eyes kind of wander around. And I'm in the mausoleum, and I look at the stone right next to where his father is going to be put to rest. And on it, it says, uh, Loving Father... Husband and son, 1935 to 2016, Henry Winkler. Now, we all know he's alive. He just won an Emmy. This was another Henry Winkler. Same name as a celebrity, right? But not the celebrity. And of all celebrities, it was Henry Winkler, buried directly next to where my father-in-law is going to be buried. Now, a normal person, any of you, a nice person, (laughs) would look at this, take it in, chuckle to themselves, and go on with their day, and respect the fact that their husband has just lost their father. Not me, not me, no. I'm looking at this, I can't believe this has just happened. I mean, it keeps happening, he just keeps appearing. So I, as my husband is standing there, tears in his eyes, aggressively tap him.
3: And I go, Dan,
2: Dan, look, look at that stone henry winkler it's another henry winkler like what we were just saying but not him but same name right what are the chances and he (laughs) looks at me and he doesn't say anything because it's inappropriate at this point to be talking at all but with his eyes he looks at me and i know exactly what he's saying and what he's saying is i am burying my fucking father margot give it a rest pause and I take it in (laughs) I kind of inappropriately smile because there he is again at another questionable moment in my life and I think you know what if that's not a sign guys I I don't know what is thank you
1: This is Risk. This is Jim Hawes behind me now with the the Happy Days theme song. Man, it's so surreal to look back at clips of that show. I mean, I used to watch that show every night that it was on back when I was a little kid. And it just feels like it it might as well have happened in another universe, in another, you know, century. Well, it did happen in another century, but... Christ, how things have changed. Our final story on this week's episode is one of our longer ones. It's a radio-style story. This is a very interesting case. Adam Strawn reached out to us. He's a Risk fan in Newcastle in England. You know, we've recorded stories with people over Skype who were, at the time we were recording them, uh, in Korea... In Argentina Israel uh, I think Portugal once so yeah it's so exciting to actually work with people around the world who are fans of the show when Adam first sent a recording of his story to us it was maybe 10 or 12 minutes long but the more we kind of worked with it it became this beautiful long-form piece that our episode editor Jeff Barr edited Adam has his own podcast called Pinpoint that you can find wherever podcasts are downloaded. And here he is now, Adam Strawn with a story we call House on Fire.
5: I was sitting in my bedroom, staring at my computer screen, and I wasn't really taking in what was on the screen, I was elsewhere in my mind, and I was really concerned, and more worried, apprehensive, and I just felt like a tightness inside. And I knew it was because of the email that I'd sent my parents the night before. And I was so worried about their reaction, so deeply worried about that to the point of where I couldn't go downstairs. I'd woken up and I was sitting at my computer and that's where I stayed. I did not feel comfortable going downstairs. And I just was racing through everything in my mind thinking, what's their reaction going to be? What are they going to say? And then I heard footsteps and that's when the panic set in. And the footsteps was somebody coming up the stairs. That could have been my mom, it could have been my dad, it could have been my brother, no idea. And then I heard the doorknob go, and that's when I froze in the chair. I couldn't move. So when the door opened, my mum came in. After a long silence of us looking at each other, and me kind of looking away, she just said to me, look, Adam, don't go near your dad. Just give him time. Don't hug him. Try not to be in the same room as him. He just needs time to accept this and get over this and I said nothing I couldn't say anything I just couldn't believe what I just heard and with that she just bowed her head and closed the door so in that email I admitted the biggest secret I'd been holding onto for my entire life was my sexuality I was coming out to my parents And it was always a struggle, it was always something that I felt like I couldn't tell them, but this moment of energy that just surged through when I sent the email and I thought, I've finally done it, I've finally done it. I came out at the age of 26, I am now 31, so I waited a long time. And I knew, I knew for years and years and years, since I was, you know, 11, 12. But I always knew as well that it was something that, it was my secret to keep, I couldn't tell my parents. It was something that I just couldn't share. And I think to understand that point, you kind of have to go back to understand my parents and their kind of upbringing and where they've come from. So my dad, when he was younger, he was born into extreme poverty. He lived in a household where sometimes he wouldn't eat. He had rooms in his house. Some of them didn't even have carpets. Some of them didn't have beds. And I remember he told me one story one time that always sticks with me when... He was so hungry one day, and there was nothing in the house, nothing to eat. So he went next door to his neighbour's bin, and he opened the bin lid, and he raided inside and found old potato peelings. So he took them back to his own home, and he fried those peelings, and he ate them that night. That's how little he had. He didn't want to become a victim of that situation. He didn't want to end up living a life growing up. He didn't want to provide a situation like that for his own family. He knew he wanted to evolve from that. My mum is a different story. She was raised in a house of war, basically, where her parents, every night, would fight. And when I say fight, I don't just mean argue verbally, which was a part of it, but I mean fist fight. And every Friday night she used to tell me where her friends would be out, they'd be drinking, they'd be partying, they'd be having a good time. Her Friday nights was lying face down on her bed with her sister with her pillow over her ears, trying to block out the sound of her parents screaming downstairs. And the sounds of her dad and my granddad punching my grandmother. And that went on for hours until eventually she passed out. So when my mom and dad came to meet each other, which they met at a young age, they met at school, and I think when you level with somebody, you, you realise if you've come from somewhere of deep pain, you can sense that in other people. And I think they just connected on that level straight away. And, you know, they developed a relationship. But from that, they agreed that they've both come from households, they've come from worlds that they want to get away from, and they want to create their own worlds together. They both had that joint consensus. So that's what they decided to do. Now, there's a beauty in that, in that they found each other, that they've started to create their own world. But there's also a danger in that, in that anything that they deemed is out of the ordinary, different, it was instantly rejected. It couldn't be part of their world. It was a no. And I think that's where that initial resistance came from. So as I was growing up, I remember one time I was sitting down with my mum and we were in the living room. We were watching television and we were watching an interview with Elton John and he was being fabulous as per (laughs) with his husband. And, you know, we were laughing and like we were just enjoying ourselves watching the show. But as it ended... I remember my mum just, her reaction was, isn't it, isn't it weird just being gay? Isn't that just so wrong? Just being gay? At this point I was maybe 15, 16, so I knew my sexuality. And that was the first moment that I thought, wow, I can't be myself around these people. <laughs> this is going to be a secret now, and it's going to be a secret for a long time maybe a few years after that when I was 18, 19 me and my dad were in the living room this time and we were watching a UK chat show host called Alan Carr who's openly gay and hilarious so we were laughing and we were having a good time watching the show and my dad's quite a big fan of his humour so we were both laughing together but he did something I'll never forget and it still makes me cold to describe it now but when the show ended He just stood up so casually and he just turned to me and just went yeah, yeah that was really funny but if it was up to me he'd still be shot. And just nodded and just walked out of the room as if he just said yeah it's a nice sunny day today. (laughs) I was dumbfounded and my mum was in the room she was on the other side of the room but she was on her laptop just typing away looking at something. And I just turned to her and I looked mouth open and I said did you just hear that can you believe what you've just heard and she just looked up briefly shrugged and continued typing on her laptop it was those two moments that cemented the thinking in me that I thought I can't be myself I can't open up I can't if that's the way he reacts to somebody he doesn't know does that mean that if I open up do I get shot do I get rejected or worse? So I knew this was going to be a secret I would keep for a long time, and I did. But when I turned 26, that was the year everything changed. Everything. It started when I just finished my dissertation, handed it in after a year's worth of work. That was that chapter done. And straight after, I met my brother in Manchester and we travelled to London. And we were going for a big video game convention in Earl's Court and we were so excited for it um, because I'm a massive geek, but whatever. (laughs) So we got there and there was a huge queue outside the building of all these avid gamers ready to go in, so excited. So we ran up and we joined the queue and um, we could see signs outside of Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo, all of this, all this buzz in the air, people ready to go in and play new games. And as we were standing there, I was chatting. So my brother was next to me and we were talking. But my ears pricked because I heard an accent in front of me that I recognised. And it was my accent. Where I'm from is the northeast of England. I'm from a place called Newcastle. I studied in Manchester. And that's where I handed in my dissertation. And I thought, oh, I'm I'm in London. And I thought maybe it was only us that had travelled this far to go to this convention. What I didn't realise was there was other people from my neck of the woods that were there. I thought, oh, shall I say something, shall I not, shall I ask if he's from there? And I just thought, oh, you know what, I'm in London, I'm vibing off this excitement, whatever. So I just said, oh, excuse me, um, can I just ask, are you from the north-east of are you from Newcastle area? That's the moment when I met a really good friend to this day, it's a guy called Glenn. And he said, yeah, 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 I'm from, you know, and he explained where he's from, and we were literally a half an hour drive from each other. I was like, oh my god, isn't this surreal? Like, we've both travelled down, you know, from the, basically the same area. We don't know each other. How, how crazy. So, we got on chatting and we got on like a house on fire. One of the first things I noticed about Glenn was his confidence, but also how carefree he was. Now, he was 21 at the time, I was 26. This guy had way more confidence than me. He was so just out there, nothing fazed him. He was up for anything. He was such just a great guy to talk to. Him. As we kind of got to know each other on that day, we found out that we went to the same clubs as each other on nights out, we listened to the same music, we had the same taste in games, obviously, um, so we said to each other, right, when we get back to Newcastle after this weekend's over, we'll arrange it, we'll go on a night out, we'll have some drinks together, we'll go at the same bar, we'll just have a good time, we said, yeah, yeah, sure. After we got back to Newcastle, a couple of weeks went by and he contacted me and said, "Hey." Saturday's coming around it's a great rock and metal night that's on in Newcastle do you want to come along? and I was like yeah like I always go there anyway I'm surprised we'd never run into each other because we both have been going for so long that night I went and met him at the club and we had a great time we were catching up again saying how crazy was that weekend that we met I met some of his friends he met some of mine we just all gelled so well for a group that had never met each other before it got to a point where it was quite regular where every Saturday we'd go to the same club and we'd just have a great time but it was maybe at the 4th or 5th time so we started to really develop quite a friendship and we'd had a few drinks and towards the end of the night so like, things were mellowing out and he turned to me and he just said adam he said i hope you don't feel like i'm being too forward when i ask this but i just feel like you're holding something back i just feel like there's something that it's almost like you want to tell me but you feel like you can't and i just i just thought right this is the moment. he He's clicking onto something. And I know the type of person he is. I know he's so carefree. He wouldn't give a shit. I can tell somebody now. This this is my moment. I've got to take it. I just said, yeah, actually, Glenn, yeah, there is. And I just said it. I said, I'm gay. And the words, it just felt like a stone in my mouth. And I just spat it out for the first time because it had been in there so long. And I just said, I'm I'm gay. But the next words was almost, I'm sorry. I almost apologized to him straight after because I felt he was going to react the same way my parents did. And he looked at me and just went, okay, all right, cool. And I was like, what? And he just went, yeah, all right. He said, yeah, my brother's gay. And I, I was dumbfounded. I just looked at him like, no one's given me this reaction, not a single person before. This is what I wanted from the people that I value so much in my life. And I didn't get that. I just got indifference and rejection. I couldn't believe it. And he said, you know what, Adam? I knew that you were gay from the moment I met you, but I felt like you were trying to convince me that you weren't. And he said to me, and these words will ring true the rest of my life. It's not about making everyone else happy. Your happiness is what is important. There's nothing wrong with being gay, so what? You don't have to apologize to anyone. And I'll never forget that. Never. It was a huge moment for me. His reaction meant more to me than he probably will ever know. And it was so casual. And I was so, <laughs> so shocked because the first thing I was expecting was just rejection. Or just indifference. I expected him to react like that. And the fact that I didn't get that reaction meant everything to me. I'm the type of person, I've always been this type of person, where... I hate letting people down. I hate it. Whether it's telling a teacher, oh, I'm really sorry, I forgot my homework, to telling a friend, I'm really sorry, I can't meet up with you this night. I've got this thing, I can't, I'm really sorry. So when Glenn told me this, initially my, although I was ecstatic inside, but my mind went to this place of, yes, but my argument is, people won't be accepting. You are, and that's fantastic, but two people that are most important in my life won't accept me so it's easier just to stay quiet and keep the status quo to keep them happy to keep everybody happy and he just said to me Adam look I'm going to be real with you for a moment you're 26 you've known this for a while just tell them just do it in your own way but just tell them you've got nothing to apologise for just remember that so I took a deep breath and I said okay I'll think about it so that night I got home and I lay in bed for hours awake thinking how I would do it, how I would tell my parents that I'm gay. And I thought different ways, I thought, shall I just casually throw it out? Shall I write it down? I just, everything went through my mind that night, I didn't get much sleep at all. So I literally rolled out of bed and I picked up my laptop and I typed it out. Everything. <laughs> The subject of the email was, I'm really sorry, but I've got something to say. So again, I was apologising straight away. (laughs) But at least I had that initial strength that was built up by Glenn just to say, you know what, this is it, this is the moment, this is time. I might not be able to say the words, but I can damn well write them down and send you them. (laughs) I wrote it out, and it was about a paragraph, and all it said was, Mom, Dad, I think somewhere inside you must have known but I've been keeping this to myself for too long now and I feel like it's suppressing who I am and I can't do this anymore. So I just said I'm gay. I'm really sorry but I'm gay. I hope you can accept that. I don't want things to change. I want everything just to be the way it is. I don't want to upset anyone. And that was that. So this brings us back to the start of the story when I woke up and I didn't go downstairs because I didn't dare go downstairs. So I turned on my computer and I sat there, and I thought, I'll let them come to me because I can't go downstairs knowing they've got this information about me now. After my mom initially came into the bedroom and said this to me about my dad, she took my hand and said, come on, we'll try and talk to him. And I said, what? She said, no, come on, come on, we'll go and speak to your dad. Before I could say anything, she kind of pulled me out of my chair and we walked downstairs together. My legs were jelly. I was a mess. And I just thought, I i didn't know what to say to him. I thought it was all there in the email. Just read it again. <laughs> but he was in the kitchen and we walked in and he had his back to me the whole time. He didn't turn around once. And he was washing the dishes. And my mum stood next to me and all I could say all that would come out was just the word dad but it was so meek just dad and I was fighting back tears I thought no I'm not going to break down now I'm not going to do it I've had so much strength and finally admitting I'm not breaking down now the whole time he spoke to me he didn't turn round and he just said son this is a decision that you've made you've decided to be this way that's your choice I don't accept it I don't want a part of it but if you want to live your life like that that's completely your choice but I won't accept it and there was a pause for a long time as he continued washing the dishes and I watched him do it because I I just had nothing to say I couldn't believe it I looked at my mum for support and she just had her head bowed she didn't want to go against my dad so it was them two against me practically and then after a long pause he then said I think you've been really selfish telling us this. You know how we would react. You know how we'd feel about this. And the fact that you've dropped this on us, I think you've been really selfish. <laughs> Inside, I was screaming. I was like, selfish? Fucking selfish? I've kept this to myself for years because I knew how you would react. And I said nothing because I wanted to make sure that you were happy, that you got the son that you wanted. That I wasn't going to be this person that you didn't like. And I'm fucking selfish for doing that. I was irate. But my face didn't show it at that point. I was bubbling inside, but I just looked away. I couldn't say anything at that point. I knew if I exploded, I wouldn't be able to stop. So I knew I just did not want to go there. As he walked out of the kitchen, he didn't look at me. My mum reiterated the instructions that I was given. Don't try and give him a hug. Try to not be in the same room as him. Don't go near him. Just leave him Adam, Leave your dad. So we had a couple of months of this, where he would be in the living room, I would be upstairs. He would go in the kitchen, I'd walk through the living room to avoid him. If he was in the house at certain hours of the day, I wouldn't be in. It went on like this for at least two, three months. But slowly things started to return back to status quo. And by that I don't mean acceptance. I mean that I could be in the same room as him. That he would actually talk to me. And I thought, well I'll take this over, making it awkward for the rest of the family. I guess I'll take this on the chin, again. I don't want to put my brothers in an awkward situation, so I'll just carry on. We'll treat it like the elephant in the room, I guess. I spoke to my brothers about it, to admit my honesty about my sexuality, I've got two brothers, an older and a younger. My older brother didn't live with us at the time, but my younger brother, Andrew, I asked him about it and I said, what do you think? He said, I don't understand why they've reacted that way. He said, I feel so sorry for you, for everything you've had to go through, for the fact you've had to keep it to yourself. But I think because in my mind, he's my brother and he's connected to my parents in the way that I am. So by extension, I kind of almost thought that he would react the same way. But he's so laid back, he couldn't give two shades of shit. He just, it wasn't an issue, just, okay. So my older brother, he was married at the time, and his wife, her sister is a lesbian. She was fine, completely fine. She'd grown up in a household where it's never been an issue. And my older brother, again, the most sweetest laid back guy in the world. Everybody loves him because of how loving and caring he is. And I told him, I said, Gavin, I've got something to tell you. I need to tell you this because I'd rather you hear it from me than from somebody else in the family. And I just said, I'm Gavin, I'm gay. I've just told our mum and dad, I've told our Andrew. I need you to know now, and I need to know how you feel about that. And he just said, Adam, finally. I've waited for you to say this to me for years. He said, I've always had an inkling, but it's not been my place to say anything. I'll always love you and I'll always support you. He said, I'm so pleased. He said, I'm so happy for you that you feel like you can be yourself now. So I'm so happy for you. He pulled me into a big hug. He said, I don't want you ever to worry about this. He said, you're always welcome at our house. If you ever need to get away, if you ever need a place of refuge, you're always welcome here. And that meant everything to me. Everything. That's what I wanted. That's the reaction I wanted. Not this resistance, not this weird, let's not talk to each other reaction, Anyway, time went on with this weird normality. And we kind of got back to the way things were, I guess, with my parents, where we didn't talk about it, but they knew, so it was weird. But things changed again when I got my first boyfriend. So I started a new job, and I met him there. And it was that kind of initial thing of where we looked at each other and we were sussing each other out. And I thought, yeah, I know why you're looking at me. And you should know why I'm looking at you. (laughs) But yeah we got on like a house on fire and he invited me over to his and we just chatted a lot more and we started to see each other a lot more and then things just went from there until eventually we admitted yeah we were in a relationship. My first relationship at the age of 27, now my first gay relationship. I've been with women before trying to prove something to myself but there was always something that was just lacking in those relationships. I never felt Fully myself or fully happy. But now I did. Now with my partner I did. He comes from a different background. He's been openly gay since the age of 11. And his parents were amazing. They've got loads of gay friends. Not an issue to them. For him to watch me in pain. To tell him this. To tell him my parents reaction. Was such a shock to him. He didn't know that people could react like that. Because he had the complete opposite reaction to what I had as time went on I started to spend a lot more time at his flat he lived in Newcastle I worked in Newcastle it made sense to stay with him so I used to spend a lot of time there and I thought you know my parents aren't daft they're going to click on they're going to know that I'm spending a lot of time out of the house I'm not obviously sleeping at work I've clearly met somebody so I've got to tell them and I said look I've got myself a partner it's a guy I'm seeing a guy we've been seeing each other for a few months now I'm really happy. It kind of felt like we went back to square one. My dad said nothing, but he looked away from me. My mum bowed her head. He said nothing. So I said to them, through this act of courage, I know we've got a big family christening coming up. I want to invite my partner. I want you guys to get to meet him. I want to be able to introduce him to the rest of the family, and I want to be able to feel happy about that. I want to enjoy that, I want to feel confident and be able to express that, that I'm in this new relationship, I'm so happy, and I want my family to know, all of my family. My dad just turned to me and he said, you want to treat this christenin' like your coming out party, and that's not fair, Adam. I remember I raised my eyebrows, and I just said, okay. I left the room and I went upstairs, and my brother was in the room. And I opened a suitcase and I started packing. And I said to my brother, I'm done. And he said, Why? Why? What's the matter? What's the matter? And I told him and he said, What? I said, Yeah, no. And I said, Andrew, I can't stay in this house anymore. I can't do it. Every time I talk about this, I'm gonna get this reaction. I am not suppressing myself anymore, I'm done. I'm happy, I'm I'm beyond this now. I'm living the life that I've wanted to live for so long, and I am not about to give this up not for that reaction and he said I don't blame you for reacting this way. Call me, keep in contact with me, don't lose contact with me. Grabbed my suitcase and I walked downstairs and my parents were still sitting there. I walked past them, grabbed my car keys and I just left. Didn't even say goodbye, didn't look at them. That night I drove to my partners and when I got there I think I just had a mask of sorrow just on my face. And he looked at me and he just gave me the biggest hug. And he said, are you alright? And I said, I I just need to tell you what's happened. So I explained everything to him. And he said, Adam, you stay here for as long as you want. You call this your home now. You're free to stay here as long as you want. He said, if you never want to go back, that's your choice. You stay here. And I said, oh, thank you so much. And he just said, I can see so much hurt behind your eyes. And it hurts me to see you that way. He said, I want to see you happy again. I said, I want to to see you smile again. So if that means you stay in here, he said, you stay as long as you want. So I did. I stayed maybe a month with no interaction with my parents, nothing. No text messages, no phone calls, no Facebook updates, no social media, nothing. I literally got up with my partner, went to work, came back to his home, which I start to call my home and we did our thing we chilled we watched films we started to build our own little life together really kind of starting to understand what it was like to live together and be in a relationship it felt like that came a lot quicker than what probably it should do in normal relationships I guess but that didn't matter to me and that didn't matter to him because we were happy and I was happy again and I put that sorrow behind me there was always a little bit of something at the back of my mind, and it was the fact that I'd lost contact with my parents. It was always there, and it was always a moment of sadness that I guess I had to myself from time to time over that month. I kept reminding myself of the way that they reacted and the words that they said, and I knew that I'd made the right decision. I also knew that, in a week, my mum's birthday was coming up. And as a family, every year we've always gone for a family meal on my mum's birthday, it's the way it's always been. And I thought, right, what do I do? Because I really don't feel like going at all. I miss my brothers, but I don't feel like going to see them. That night, I got a phone call off my mum when I was walking back from work. I thought, this is uncanny. I was just thinking about this. And I looked at my phone for a minute, thinking, should I answer, should I not? I know what it's going to be about. Should I answer this call? Do I reject this? Do I cut all ties and just continue living my life the way it is, or do I extend an olive branch in hope that something's improved? So I answered, and I said, hi, mum. And there was silence for a while, and she just, with almost a quiver in her voice, just said, Adam, I need to know if you're coming to my birthday. I need to know. And I could hear she was upset. She said, I can't imagine having my birthday without you being there. I can't. And this gave me a choice. This was like a fork in the road where I thought I can either go down the harsh route, cut all ties and say, I won't be there. Don't call me again. Or I can try and talk things out and see if they've made any improvement, see if they've evolved, see if they've progressed in any way with everything. So I just said, look, ma'am, let me put it this way. I don't want to miss your birthday, but I feel like you're making me. You know the way you've reacted to me, you and Dad. If you keep pushing me away, what do you think will happen? I'll walk away. I'll walk away, and I won't come back. And I heard her beginning to sob on the phone. And she said, Adam, things have changed. I need you to come to my birthday. Let us explain in person. And I said, okay. And I thought in my mind, this is the last chance. This is the last chance. And I'm going kind of for her sake, kind of a little bit for my sake, for my brother's sake, and more out of a curiosity to see how things have changed, especially with my dad. So I got home to my partner's flat, and I said, look, I just had a phone call off my mum, and he was like, really? How are things? Is everything all right? And he looked at me, and I had a sense of determination. Now, I wasn't upset, I wasn't angry, I was just determined. And I told him the conversation, I said, I, I wanna go, but I wanna see how things have changed. And if I get one glint of things being the same, I'm out of there. And that'll be me done. And he said to me, look at him. You need to go alone. He said, you need to go to that birthday alone. He said, We don't want a christener number two if I came along with you. He said, you need to go to that alone and you need to do this for yourself. You know, and he said, Just be strong, but you go along. He said, if you need me at all, he said, you know where I am. So that week came, the day of my mum's birthday. A couple of days before, I sent her in the post a new shirt for her birthday. And I sent her a card from Adam and Cain, not just Adam, from me and my partner. And in there I wrote, this is a gift from us both. So I was intrigued to see how their reaction would be to the card and also the gift. I got to the restaurant and my parents and brothers were waiting outside and my mum clocked me and the first thing I noticed is she had the shirt on. She had the birthday shirt on and that was sign number one where I thought, she's making an effort here so maybe, just maybe but she came straight over to me, she left my dad and brothers ran over to me and gave me a big hug and she said Adam I'm so happy you're here, I'm so happy you're here thank you so much for being here and she pulled me in closer and she whispered in my ear and she said look Adam your dad won't admit this to you but I'm going to tell this to you now he's been walking past your bedroom nearly every night since you've left and he's looked in And he's just said, I really miss our Adam. I really miss our Adam. And that meant everything to me, everything. That felt like acceptance. Felt like he knew the person that I was now and he missed me. And I thought, okay, maybe things are changed. Maybe things are different. So I walked over with my mom to meet the rest of my family. My brothers gave me a big hug, but it's when I turned to my dad that's when I was ready. And I thought, this is either the moment that'll make things different, or it'll break and I'll go. And he had a huge smile on his face, and he pulled me in for a hug. And that's the first time I'd hugged my dad in maybe six months, and it felt like everything. He didn't say anything, but that hug said everything. And I knew I just I felt an acceptance, a warmth, at last. We walked in, and we sat down, and we had a meal, and we were talking as a family, and it felt nice. We were talking about how things were, how things had been. My brothers were talking about their lives, and Mum and Dad were talking about work and how things were at home. And I thought, right, well, seems that we're all being open. I'm going to talk about my partner, so I told them about my partner, Kane. And at first I thought, right, are they going to look away? Is this the point where they turn away and say nothing? But it's my dad that turned to me and said, oh, what does he do for a living? My mum said, oh, so how are things? Whereabouts does he live? Mind blown. Blown away. It's like, oh my God, this, this is the conversation I've waited so long for. And I never, never thought I would get. This is the complete polar opposite reaction to what I thought I would get. I thought I would turn up and I'd walk away. But you know what? I went for it. I told them everything. I said, this is a guy who I'm really starting to fall for. He's a really nice guy. He's really looked after me, and I think you guys will really get on with him. And they kind of agreed. They said, yeah, sounds like a great guy. We're looking forward to meeting him. And that meant everything. Again, we're looking forward to meeting him. By extension, my partner also became another secret of mine that I almost couldn't talk about. But now I could. It was all out in the open, they knew everything. And I kind of watched their reaction as they said the words, we look forward to meeting him. And I watched to see if that was through gritted teeth, whether that was hard, but it came so natural. And that was for both of them, my mom and dad. And they both agreed. And I thought, this is amazing. So at the end of the meal, I gave everybody a big hug. As I was walking back, I got a text message off my mum as I got to my car and she said we really want to meet your partner when can we meet? tell us a date and we're there and I thought oh finally I got in my car and I was driving back to the flat that night and the song Gods and Monsters by Lana Del Rey was on the radio I love that song but there's one lyric in particular that stood out that night in the song and it's the lyric No one's going to take my soul away. And it really hit me. And I listened to that song. And I listened to it again. And it just, it connected with me. I thought, no one is going to take who I am away from me now. People know who I am. I am expressing myself in ways I've never done before. But I finally feel I can be me without being judged, without being harassed, without thinking that I'm going to upset somebody or have to apologize because this is me. And no one is going to take my soul away from me. No one. So I got back to the flat. And my partner was standing there with his arms folded like, well, <laughs> expecting the worst. And I told him everything. A massive smile crept across my face and I said, you'll never guess what. And I relayed the whole night to him. But the part he squealed at was, and they really want to meet you. He was like, what? I was not expecting this at all. Like, okay so we ran and got his diary and he was like right let's do this so we looked when we were free and it was a week uh, so we'd met on Saturday it was the next Saturday we were free we said right why don't the four of us sit down in a restaurant and we'll just talk and we'll get to know each other <music> the week went by I had a mixture of emotions about the meal again I guess because it's still in my mind I still thought they could at any moment just turn this on its head they could just say one thing and just ruin this perfect moment that I've been building for for so long but we were dressed up to the nines and we left the flat we both looked fab and as we were walking down the street to the restaurant I turned to Kane and I said look I just want to get this out the way now and I, this is the only rule I kind of want to set for the night, but I'm not bothered how they make me feel. But if they make you feel uncomfortable at any point, you tell me and we'll go. Because I'm not having that. So when we got there, we met just outside the restaurant and my mom and dad were there and we went over. I hugged my mom, my mom pulled Kane in for a big hug. My dad did the handshake. And I thought, well, that's step number one. You know, he's greeting them, he's acknowledging them. And he's making an effort. Maybe it's for me, but in order to make an effort, you've got to make a bit of an effort for yourself as well. And he's doing this, and I noticed a change in him. So we were chatting, and we said, look, should we go and get our table? So we went upstairs, and I purposely sat opposite my mom so he came could sit opposite my dad. I purposely did that because so I thought, you guys are going to talk. I'm going to talk to my mom, but I'm going to listen the whole time. So food came. And we began chatting and I was just ch- catching up with my mum. I said, oh, look, your birthday last week was lovely. I'm so pleased that, you know, we came along. The food was nice. But the whole time my mum was talking, I kind of feel a little bit bad about this, but whatever. She was kind of talking, but I kind of wasn't listening because what was going on in the conversation next to me was so much more important at that point. My dad and Kane were getting on like a house on fire. And that's where my attention was. <laughs> so my mom was kind of getting the, aha, uh-huh, yeah, lovely, aha. Uh-huh. She could have been telling me that the house burned down, but I was like, yeah, uh-huh, okay, wonderful. Because I was too focused on this conversation that was happening. They were talking about films that they shared. They were talking about music that they shared. The big thing is running. Cain's a big runner and my dad's a big runner. And they just connected on that level, talking about marathons, half marathons times that they've made. I'm not a runner so that didn't make a lot of sense to me but the fact that they connected on something that they could just share and just get amongst just, uh, it was a joy to watch just them riff off each other like that which I never expected. After the meal we went downstairs and we were still talking, me and my mum Kane and my dad behind me and we left the restaurant we got to the point where we were going to part ways, we were going to go back to the flat mum and dad were going to go back to their car and drive home So my dad pulled me in for a big hug. As I gave my mom a hug, I looked over her shoulder and I expected the handshake. But my dad pulled Cain in for a hug. I just remember looking over thinking, wow. I can't believe how far you've come. In a matter of months, not even a year. I've waited for that for so long, so long. And I know you're not hugging me right now. But you're hooking everything, that means everything to me. And it was just amazing. It really was. I remember thinking, two months ago that wouldn't have happened. A year ago that wouldn't have happened. It just opened my perspective completely. That people can change. That people can see the hurt that they've put you through. But... People can open the perspective when they allow themselves to. And I think in that moment they realised how important my happiness was to them, finally. One of the most important things is to never assume anything. I think they went into that thinking that it was going to be such a negative for them, that it was going to be something that they couldn't handle, but they were so wrong. In moments like that, I think in life, just prove how preconceptions could be so wrong that there can be such a stall on how you can take things and how you can accept things that can put such a block on a part of life that you can miss out because you've preconceived something in such the wrong way but the fact that they pushed through that meant that they opened themselves up to this new form of happiness that they knew that they never knew about they could see their son happy fully happy fully himself and that meant the world to me. And where are things now? <laughs> My mum and dad adore him. They adore him. They want to see him more than me. <laughs> um, but whenever he comes over to the house, they laugh, they share stories, they talk about good times, we share stories about our time together, our holidays together, work, how just we just thrive now. And it's the polar opposite compared to how things were, how stale and stagnant things were. But I think the cherry on top of the cake, which is already a beautiful cake now, but the cherry on top is that my dad, whenever I ask him about Kane, he always says, I have a new son now. (laughs) What more can I say?
4: Bye.
1: is all for this week's episode folks this is Lana Del Rey behind me now and we just heard from Adam Strawn now you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Strawn 87 that's S-T-R-A-U G-H-N 87 by the way our story coaches and producers Brad Lawrence and Cindy Freeman also did a lot of behind the scenes work on that story so Big love to Brad and Cindy. While we're listening to Lana Del Rey, I want to give a shout-out to Laura DeLong, (laughs) who is our latest Patreon supporter, who's giving $25 or more a month. We always give a shout-out to someone who gives that much or more. And you know, there's a lot of bonus content on our Patreon, if you go there. I'm about to record... And ask me anything that we're going to upload this week. And, uh, you know, there's lots of bonus stories there as well. So check it out at patreon.com risk because we really need the financial support of our fans in order to keep all of this running. Did you know that there's a Risk podcast fans discussion group on Facebook? That is where most people like to come and talk about their thoughts and feelings about the stories that they hear on the podcast. Or you can also leave comments on the listen pages at risk showcom We always love hearing your reactions to what you've heard on the show. So, you know, get engaged that way as well. Don't forget you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com/tour. And all of the storytelling education that we do is at the storystudio.org. Be sure to look us up there as well. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
4: This is heaven, what I truly want is Innocence Lost, Innocence Lost.
3: E...